Chapter 5 of The Gargoyle by Gariela Spina This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 5 Sybil Conducted by Mason, Luke found himself back in the roof garden after the usual traverse of twisting, winding corridors. The impatient Cagliostro arose immediately, anxious for his own interview with the master, but on his way out stopped to whisper in Luke's ear, "'Well, is he satisfied? What did he ask you? What did you say to him?' Luke's lips twitched with amusement. His gray eyes danced. "'Friend Cagliostro, I was asked if I believe in magic, and I said I did.' The occultist's pale blue eyes stared incredulously at him. "'Well, you're rather surprising, Mr. Porter. I had no idea that you were far enough along on the road to believe in the tremendous underlying powers and forces which the average individual doesn't even suspect, let alone believe in. Well, well, well.' Down the corridor, behind the retreating mason, Luke could hear that astonishing echo of well, 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 as Cagliostro went to his interview. The breakfast table had been removed. A gaily red vis-a-vis -vis swing had been stood up in its place, as if in preparation for someone. Luke dropped into one side of it and began mulling over his experiences of the past night and that morning, swinging back and forth as he thought. That Guy Fane was a monomaniac on the subject of black magic, he could see readily. What he disliked was the implication that the innocent Sybil Fane was to be involved to her own injury in some of Guy Fane's villainous or criminal practices. Moreover, Luke himself was also being drawn into them, if he was to believe the hints contained in the words of the master the night before. Just how he could be useful to the black magician, he could not imagine, and he wondered how much of his knowledge on the subject could safely be imparted to Cagliostro Moderno, whose ingenious nature he had sensed even at their first meeting. Luke did not believe that the little Herbert Benny cared to be drawn into such vile practices as Guy Fane would be guilty of. To a certain extent, then, Herbert Benny might be trusted, and if his knowledge of black magic was more than merely theoretical, perhaps he would understand why Guy Fane imagined he could rob another man of fine physique, handsome features for his own vicious purposes. Sunken in his puzzled thoughts, Luke did not see a slender, girlish figure that tripped from the doorway across the garden path toward him, and came to a stop before the swing. Then he looked up, startled for a moment. Sybil's blonde hair had been cut in a modern bob, but with its fluffy curls it made a soft frame about her face. She lifted her eyes to him, and the artist almost cried out with exultation. So beautiful was their purple pansy velvetiness. The play of alert and arch-intelligence lightened the lovely face that he had seen the night before in soft repose. Only one defect, if defect it was, made Sybil's eyes seem deep with mystery. The eyebrows that outlined them above were much darker than her hair, making her eyes and her crimson lips stand out with startling prominence on her pale skin. The artist sprang to his feet. Miss Fane? The girl put out both hands in such friendly fashion that Luke dropped formality at once. Her charm, her poise, her absolute ingenuousness made their impression upon the man as well as upon the artist. He took the slender hands in his. They stood for a moment in silence, looking at each other with interested eyes. Then Sybil spoke in a soft, repressed little voice with a nervous undertone trembling through it. "'Are you... are you... my lover?' The artist remained silent for an astonished moment, 
his mobile lips parting slightly with the shock of her words. Some movement in the doorway drew his eyes. The gray-haired Alden was standing there, Duenna-like, one finger ever so slightly uplifted as if in mourning. He remembered her words of the previous night. May I be your lover? he said quickly. She nodded with sweet simplicity, honest purple eyes still upon him. Her hands clung with a soft pressure that stirred his heart strangely. He swore to himself that no harm should touch this innocent, ingenuous girl if he could foresee and prevent it. Let us sit on the parapet, proposed Sybil, gaily drawing him to the garden wall which overhung the black moat. There are so many things I want to ask you, and I am so glad you are handsome, dear lover. I have always been afraid you wouldn't look the way I wished. And I do, smiled Luke, letting himself fall in with the mood of the girl as one humors an innocent child. Oh, I love your great eyes, she said honestly, and your teeth are so nice when you smile. And you have a kind of air. You see, lover, I've never yet seen any man but the servants here. My cousin Guy never lets anyone see him, because he has weak eyes, poor dear, and cannot come out in the sun. And you are so different from Mason and the other men. I should hope so, was Luke's fervent, though unspoken, comment. Mrs. Alden advanced from the doorway. Sybil turned toward her, old nurse, with a welcoming smile. Oh, Alden, dear, isn't my lover beautiful? The ardent admiration in her voice brought color to the artist's tanned cheeks, but he met the unsmiling gaze of Alden with frank sincerity. "'Isn't Sybil the loveliest thing the world has ever seen?' he asked of no one in particular, but his voice vibrated with an emotion that Alden noted, if the girl did not. The older woman stood near the two as they sat on the parapet. She looked down into the moat below, Luke still holding the girl's slender hands in his, artist eyes feasting upon her blonde loveliness enhanced by the crude embroideries on the white woolen sports frock, did not realize at first what Alden was saying. Then when she repeated her words, he gave them alert attention, realizing that she spoke with a hidden meaning. "'Nobody could hope to swim unhurt through that black water,' she was saying significantly. Ten feet wide and eight feet deep is that sluggish water, Mr. Porter. And look!' She leaned across the parapet, pointing urgently at something whitish that floated in the turbid water. As Luke leaned over to look, there was the movement of some long, slimy thing below, and the whitish article went whirling in the eddies caused by the abrupt movement of that water snake. It was the body of a dove. The poor thing's plumage was soiled with viscid green and darker stains that might have been dried blood. Luke's eyes went to Alden's in mute inquiry. The woman shook her head as if she either could not or would not explain. Sybil, however, was not so backward. "'You're wondering about that poor dove?' she asked softly. "'Oh, that is one thing I don't like. "'I don't indeed. "'I've told my cousin Guy hundreds of times "'that I just couldn't bear it to have my doves killed for sacrifices, "'no matter how great the cause.' "'Her voice trembled slightly, "'and Luke saw that the pansy eyes were moist. "'But he is above worrying over the life of a dove "'when he is seeking wonderful things that are so much more important.' There was a dreamy look now in the purple eyes. Alden looked at her charge, a tragic impotence on her wrinkled face. Now it is a dove, she said, not directly to Luke, but as if she were talking to herself. The other day it was a young lamb. And it may some day be another lamb. 
Luke felt cold chills traversing his spinal column. This black magician, then, was actually sacrificing lives to his devilish gods. Could it be possible that Sybil and he himself were already devoted to that devil worship? Luke told himself that in future he would not stir without the automatic in his pocket. The tenseness of his gray eyes did not escape Alden's observation. She sighed as if in relief. Don't let's talk about it, hastily interpolated Sybil with a shudder. I just cannot get used to it. I've told Cousin Guy many times that I'm sure the high powers would appreciate fine fruits or choice flowers or incense, as well as a poor little dove's life. Shall we talk about painting you, Sybil? suggested Luke, the artist in him gaining the mastery. She clapped her hands gaily. That would be fun, lover. Call me Luke, dear. That is my name. Luke? How odd, but I like it. Where are your canvases and brushes and colors, Luke? Luke turned to Alden. I left the whole business in my car outside in the garage. Can I manage to get outside the castle? A mysterious smile came over Alden's face. No, Mr. Porter, you cannot. What? exploded Luke. Alden's finger went to her lips again. It would be better for you to ask Mason to send a man for your painting things, she suggested pointedly. Reluctantly, Luke assented. He did not like the idea that he was virtually a prisoner in the castle, but in view of more important things, he put that thought aside for the time being. Mason sent a page for the artist's paraphernalia. The easel was set up in the garden, and Sybil seated herself on the parapet, little pointed chin on drawn-up knees about which her arms were clasped in childish fashion. Luke, silent, prepared his palette and began to paint. In this manner, the morning fled and when luncheon was announced he hardly cared to leave his work, which was shaping up in a most gratifying manner. "'After luncheon I'll pose again,' Sybil promised, fluttering around the easel in delight at the more than vague promise Luke had given to her portrait. "'Come, Luke, let's hurry with lunch.' The dining room in Fainwald Castle was extraordinarily handsome. Luke betrayed his artist's interest the moment it burst upon him. It was beautifully paneled with solid mahogany, to judge from the massiveness of the carving that decorated the wood. Around the entire room ran a jutting balcony, enclosed in a marvelously carved balustrade. Above this was a latticework screen. For just what purpose the screen had been designed, Luke did not know, but he concluded that it afforded a fine vantage point from which an invisible observer could look down into the room. Sybil waited, standing by her chair at the table. Presently... A woman entered the room, a woman of proud dignity, tall, stately, but a wreck of what must once have been magnificent womanhood. Flashing black eyes gleamed under heavy brows still black, making a strange contrast with snowy hair piled high. Never had the artist seen a more melancholy and interesting countenance than that of Madame Fane. He could the better observe it now than at a distance as he had the night previous. The simplicity of her coiffure made more pronounced the sophistication of the concealed fire smoldering in the twin volcanoes under her heavy brows. Those occasional brilliant flashes betrayed the vivid and powerfully restrained personality. Rarely, however, did she raise her heavy lids to look anyone directly in the eye. Rather did she turn her face slightly, replying in monosyllables which discouraged direct conversation with her a strange, silent woman who gave the impression of forces ill-spent and coping vainly with something bigger than herself. 
and hints. Chari of so little energy or vitality as might escape her in a single word. Sybil seated herself after Madame Fane, and motioned Luke to pay no attention to her aunt, as the girl called the older woman. Conversation during luncheon lagged. This might have been Madame Fane's cold abstraction or Sybil's intimation that Guy Fane lunched on the balcony, hidden behind the lattice. There was something, too, ominous and oppressive in the older woman's heavy glance, which Luke more than once found fixed with strange intensity upon either Sybil or himself, nor was this all. He felt as if a thousand mocking evil eyes were watching his every movement from behind that lattice. Although the brilliantly lighted dining room must have been hard on Guy Fane's weak eyes, unless the master was posing with regard to his mysterious malady. Luke was glad when the meal was over, and Sybil drew him back to the garden to finish her portrait. An inquiry as to the whereabouts of Herbert Benny led to the response from the girl that he was probably with her cousin, preparing himself for the greatest experiment of all, the subject of which she was ignorant about, but for which her cousin had prepared her mentally to look forward joyfully. Cagliostro, in effect, did not show up all afternoon, at dinner, however, he appeared, serious, distant of mien, obviously wrapped up in his thoughts. Luke's attempts to draw him into conversation met with a decided rebuff. The occultist took himself seriously. Whether or not the master had divulged the object of his experiments, Luke could not discover without a private conversation with Cagliostro, and Cagliostro evaded him neatly after dinner. The autumn evening had grown slightly chill. Sybil therefore led the way to her boudoir, a charming room where she had a piano, a harp, and a violin. Her taste, she told Luke, had run largely to music because it stirred her emotions so beautifully. Guy had provided teachers, women always, from time to time, but for some reason none of them remained long. Just when they were getting interesting, Sybil said regretfully, and were telling me more about the outside world, they disappeared. But I've learned to amuse myself a lot with music, Luke. Shall I play to you? She played. The evening wore on to eleven o'clock. Mason appeared in the doorway with a silver tray on which steamed the spiced wine, which Luke suspected of soporific qualities. Sybil sipped hers innocently enough, but Luke managed to avoid drinking the nightcap except for a few mouthfuls, which he took partly out of sheer curiosity and partly to disarm the waiting and watchful Mason. That night Luke let himself slip into a half-sleep induced probably by what little wine he had taken, and partly by lack of much sleep the night before. In some subtle manner, strange thoughts entered his unguarded mind, wild dreams through which flitted figures clad in medieval vestures, carrying tall candlesticks with flickering lights atop. As he dozed, he seemed to hear snatches of talk. So much a dream was it, that he did not make the necessary effort to awake and make sure that it was imagination only. A figure short and ungainly, with a veiled face, obtruded itself. To his half-day's consciousness there seemed to be an atmosphere of thick, murky, precious in the vicinity of this veiled being. An atmosphere weighing so heavily upon his spirits that he felt his throat choking physically. But the sensation was also of a moral cast, a shrinking of the higher senses with repugnance. Another figure, tall and thin, impressed him with the deep, shuddering pity, such as one might feel for a soul that regards its own deliberate ruin with affright, yet holds to its terrible course as if chained by bonds too powerful to be broken. "'He is a handsome fellow,' a voice murmured. 
These fine, shapely limbs please me well. A hand touched Luke lightly. At the loathsome contact, he shrank with a half-moan. There was a grim laugh. The speaker leaned more closely over the sleeper, who began to draw gasping breaths as if oppressed beyond endurance. How my very nearness affects this youth. The spells of Lord Lucifer have indeed been powerful. They have made me another and loftier being than mere man. Awful pride rang in the words. Tell me, dear mother, mockingly. How long will it be for this youth to grow so ardent in his wooing that Sybil's susceptible heart, so carefully prepared, will yield to his love-making? If they are not for each other, it will be never, declared Madame Fane. Oh, how you love to croak your woeful prophecies. Lucifer, Lord Lucifer, grant my prayer soon. I can wait no longer. My monstrous, my execrable body is poisoning my soul with detestation. You awaken him, warned the other. He is starting and muttering in his sleep. Come. Both figures melted into nothingness. Luke fell into a deep and dreamless sleep. End of chapter 5